welcome and thank you for tuning into this week's episode of Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, where the most hideous, the most gruesome, and the most high-profile homicides occurring in Maryland, they are discussed, they are profiled, and they are examined. As I stated for this season, season nine, the topic is revenge, and vengeance is mine, said the Lord. That is the scripture in Romans 12, 19 through 21, or um, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 32, 35, depending on whatever Bible you're using, uh, the King James Version, New World Translation, etc., etc. And um, basically, for this whole entire season, we have been focusing on cases that has had a revenge uh, or vengeance motive to them. And um, they say that revenge is a dish served cold. And these next cases of revenge murders, they did not fail to deliver just that. Now, um, this next case of revenge homicide occurring in Maryland, it had a clear motive, a clear motive of revenge, or basically, I'm going to pay you back for whatever it is that I feel that you did to me. Some people, they just cannot let things go and move on. And um, this next, uh, this episode's case of revenge homicide that I'm going to profile is the poisoning murder of 17-year-old Benjamin Edward Vasiliev. This murder that was committed by his best friend, 18-year-old Ryan Thomas Furlow. And just like I've done in every single episode of this podcast, a portion of this podcast will be dedicated to an unsolved homicide that needs special attention because it's now considered a cold case. And in every single episode of this podcast, although a lot of attention and focus is placed upon and given to homicides that may have received a lot of attention and notoriety, on the flip side... This podcast also has a goal in assisting in any unsolved homicide that needs to be solved. And this episode's unsolved homicide is the shooting murder of 45-year-old Vernon Lee Gow. Okay, friends, how many of us have them? <laughs> mm, that was the lyrics or words from the rap group Houdini from a song like way back in the 80s for those of us who can remember um that rap group Houdini like me I used to be a fan of I think his name was Ecstasy one of the names was Ecstasy I thought he was cute <laughs> but anyway this next case that I'm going to profile is about just that friendship some people value their friendships more than they their friendships with their own family they be like, we know that's my boy or that's my girl, that's my dog or whatever, that's my ride or die. Some people don't play about their friendships with people. And they are loyal to the end for their friends. Even before they are, you know, for their own quote-unquote blood relatives or whatever. They'll do anything for their friends. And yeah, they expect that the loyalty that they give to you for you to reciprocate, reciprocate it in return to them. 18-year-old senior Ryan Thomas Furlow 
and junior 17-year-old Benjamin Edward Vasiliev. I'm hopefully I'm pronouncing his last name right. Um, but they were best friends since they were both little kindergarten students at uh, Northfield Elementary School. While Ben was more outgoing and he had a life with other friends, Ryan was more of an introvert who struggled with his self-esteem. Um, he had, pliant, he had uh, problems with making other friends. Ryan was only cool with Ben even as they grew up over the years and as they moved on to like junior high and high school. Um, the two best friends, they lived less than a mile apart from each other. And as they grew up, uh, Ben started branching out, making new friends, you know, doing other things with his life, uh, picking up hobbies, learning how to swim, stuff like that, doing things that uh, Ryan wasn't doing. Um, ben got a girlfriend, like most teens do, and uh, Ben started participating in various school clubs and organizations when they both got to Centennial High School in Howard County. As a junior at the school, Ben became a member of the school's drama club because he had developed a passion or a liking for acting and filmmaking. When uh, Ben was 15 years old, because of a heart condition, Ben had to have open heart surgery and he managed to make a full recovery from um, something as major as that. Now, despite having this major surgery um, and surviving it, Ben went on to live a full life at his home and at school. Uh, he enrolled in martial arts and he earned a black belt in the Korean art of sword fighting and in Ben's spare time he was learning how to speak Japanese, he was learning how to speak Korean, and he was learning how to speak Russian all by himself. To top all this off, Ben was writing a self-published novel, which I'm telling you that's not easy to do, and did I say that he had a girlfriend? But while Ben kept busy with a full and active social life, his longtime best friend Ryan, who was a senior at the same school, he had struggled with almost everything. Like he struggled with making friends. He wasn't really outgoing. Um, he complained at one point that he didn't know how to swim. Um, Ryan, he basically struggled academically all throughout school ever since he was a young child. Um, he did not make friends as easily as Ben did. And Ryan eventually just started struggling with depression and his self-esteem. Ryan had no girlfriend and was more like a nerd at this school and while Ben sometimes tried to include Ryan in some of the events and activities that he did with his other friends, Ben's other friends didn't always approve of this because they basically thought that Ryan was, you know, a little weird, a little standoffish even. And Ryan basically had no other real friends other than Ben throughout his childhood and as most childhood friends sometimes do, they just basically start drifting apart. That's just what they do. I mean, it's very rare that you're going to find friends that have been friends since kindergarten all the way up through high school. I'm not saying it don't happen, but it's very rare that that happened. Anyway, um, they just started drifting apart. Or basically, I should say, Ben started drifting away from Ryan. And he started doing other things without Ryan. 
but he started, uh, you know, living his life with his other friends. And like I said earlier, again, Ben had a girlfriend and Ryan did not. And you already know how that can go sometimes. I'm quite sure Ryan felt like a third wheel, you know, whenever they hung out. Over time and eventually Ryan started feeling more and more like he was being left out and he didn't like all of the attention, the attention that Ben was giving to his girlfriend when it used to just be the two of them hanging out and now Ben was spending all of his time with her and he basically didn't like it. Um, the relationship started to, the relationship between the two best friends was starting to feel like strained forced like you know basically like he was making him do it and and Ryan basically started to resent his friend and that resentment turned to jealousy and that jealousy turned to pure revenge and rage especially after Ben kept standing Ryan up on times when they were supposed to hook up and hang out um by October of 2002 Ryan started thinking of ways that he could basically get rid of Ben permanently. Ryan decided that he was going to poison his best friend. Um, who knows how he came to that conclusion, but Christmas of 2002. When Ben gave Ryan a Christmas gift that Ryan thought was cheesy... Ryan decided in his evil, sinister teenage mind that he was going to pay his former best friend back. And he was going to pay him back in a way where he would never, ever recover from. Using his mother's credit card, Ryan went online, paid $5, and bought 6 grams of potassium cyanide. Now, Ryan, trust me, he did his research and he knew that only 1.5 grams, Ryan knew that basically only 1.5 grams of this lethal poison would be enough to kill a human. And that's not much. That's something that can fit. 1.5 grams is something that can feel like in the thumbnail. This sign out, it came in the mail at Ryan's home on Ryan's 18th birthday, December the 11th, 2002. And Ryan decided to test it out. One day at school, Ryan, he put a few drops of the cyanide in a water bottle that he handed to Ben after they had a chemistry class at school just to see what would happen. But after Ben took a sip of it, right away, uh, Ben could tell, he could taste that the water had like a bitter taste to it, so he spit it all out. Ryan even took a, like a sip of the water himself to play it off to make it seem like, you know, everything was a-okay and not make everything not seem like it was too suspicious. But he too spit the water out too because he could also taste like the bitterness. After experimenting with like the poison that way, Ryan knew that if he was going to get Ben to drink this stuff, like basically if he knew that he was going to have him drink this poison, then he would have to find another drink other than water because a person could easily detect um, the taste in it. Now this is all this is going through his mind while he's, planning this is like his friend keep all this in mind so you know um he's just thinking like if you just mix it with water it's going to be hard to get rid of the taste so ryan had debated in his head whether or not he should even go through with all this or not he had plenty of time for this but he thought every time he thought about 
you know, the times that his so-called friend stood him up, or he thought about the times that he, quote-unquote, ignored him, and he thought about, like, all the times that, you know, they shared together, and now that he was spending his time with somebody else, including a girlfriend, the more he thought about it, the madder he got, and he invited, he decided to invite Ben over to his house for one last visit. So on January 3rd, 2003, around 8 p.m., Ben is over Ryan's house one night in the 3500 block of Road Valley Trail in Ellicott City. Tonight was going to be the night that Ryan was going to make his move. Um, they started the evening out like any other time. They Any other time they hung out or whatever, they started playing video games and watching the Vin Diesel movie Triple X. Then when Ben went over to a computer and started burning music on a CD, y'all remember we, we had to burn music on CDs? You can tell it's 2000. But anyway, Ryan felt he basically he had hidden um, the cyanide. He, he felt for, he felt, he looked, he put his hand under the couch for a vial of cyanide that he had hidden under the couch earlier. And while Ben was preoccupied with burning the music on the CD on the computer, Ryan dumped the vial of cyanide in an open can of vanilla Coke. Do they even still have vanilla Coke anymore? Anyway, um, then Ryan asked Ben, like, if he was thirsty, you know, like, if you're thirsty or whatever, and if he wanted something to drink. When Ben was like, yeah, Ryan handed him the can of poisoned vanilla Coke, and he watched as Ben drank about half of the vanilla Coke straight down. Within minutes, Ben said he felt sick. He dropped the joystick controller that he was holding, and his body went into a full-blown grand mal seizure. Ryan sat there and watched his friend season, with him foaming at the mouth and everything, body convulsing, just everything, like if you watch somebody ever have a seizure before. He sat there and watched this. Ryan's parents were home, and eventually, Ryan yelled for his mother, who was a registered nurse. Ryan's parents came down in the basement, and Ryan's um, father immediately called 911 and told the 911 dispatcher that his son's friend was having a very serious seizure. And Ryan's mother, she took over the call, and she calmly explained to the 911 dispatcher what she was witnessing. In her words, she said, he's having a grand mal seizure. It's been continuous for the last six minutes. He's still seizing. Now he's starting to get flaccid. You know, flaccid means limp. So when EMS personnel arrived at the home, they found Ben in a critical, critical state. And even though they tried treating him right there on the scene, none of the treatment revived Ben. And uh, Ben was rushed by Ambo to Howard County General Hospital for treatment. But Ben was in dire condition, too critical for Howard County General Hospital, especially because they really didn't know what was wrong with him. So Ben was flown to John Hopkins Pediatric Intensive Care Unit in a full-blown coma. Despite all of the treatment that the doctors could do for a person who had ingested cyanide, five days after swallowing the lethal concoction that was secretly given to him by his so-called best friend on wednesday january the 8th 2003 ben never recovered from being in a coma and died 
An autopsy later determined that Ben had a level of cyanide in his blood that was two or three times above the normal levels. And a doctor later testified in court that if he had known that Ben had ingested cyanide in the first place, then he could have easily treated him and saved his life because the whole time, um, for a while, uh, Ryan kept saying that he had no idea, you know, what made his friend just go into convulsions. He was like, I don't know what happened. He just zapped out. This is what he's telling his parents, 911, everybody, he don't know what's going on. And the doctors were like, you know, if they would have known um, that he had ingested cyanide, then they could have treated him because there is an antidote for this type of uh, poisoning. Now, I say this all the time on this podcast. Detectives and police, they are not stupid. They're not, y'all. No matter how much y'all think y'all, y'all want them to be, no matter how many people think they can fool them, they have seen it all. They see it every day. And no normal, typical 17-year-old kid just fly off into a seizure, at least not normal, not normally. And the cops felt suspicious of Ryan immediately and decided to question him about what happened. It turns out the detective's suspicions were on point when Ryan broke down, cried, and confessed to them that he had been thinking about killing his best friend since October because he had been standing him up, not spending enough time with him, brushing him off, and because Ryan felt that Ben was neglecting him because he had a girlfriend. Ryan tearfully told the detectives, eventually Ryan tearfully told the detectives that he took their friendship seriously and that he personally, he never spent less than $15 on a gift, but usually at least he spent $20 for Ben for their birthday. But Ben ain't do that for him. And he said that Ben had given him a cookbook that came off um, of his bookshelf as a gift. And even that gift wasn't even wrapped. So in Ryan's words, he cried as he confessed to the detectives. He just didn't care. When there was nothing again and again, I started to think for some reason or other, he just doesn't care about me anymore. I was trying to forgive him because I didn't have many friends and he was one of the best that I had. But I wanted to do harm to him. I wanted to kill him. Hmm. Now, Ryan said that he decided to poison his best friend because he thought that Poisoning would be a simple, surefire, easy, pain-free way to die. And he wasn't strong or he admitted that he wasn't strong or stable enough to just confront Ben directly about how he was feeling. Ryan told the detectives that he felt that he was out of control when he planned Ben's murder. According to articles in The Baltimore Sun, in Ryan's own words, he confessed to the detectives saying, Things seemed to flow by themselves. Every second I was doing it, I just felt that I couldn't control myself anymore. I wanted my pain to stop. I was getting so angry, and then I remembered the reason I invited him over. This is nothing but premeditation. So Ryan said that after he put the poison in Ben's drink and watched him drink it, and then go into a seizure, Ryan described the scene in his own words what it looked like as... He watched his friend basically dying. Ryan said in his words, he said, I turned around to look at him and it looked like he was struggling to breathe. 
it looked like he was trying to break free from something. Ryan did tell the detectives that he did regret it when uh, the poison started working and he thought to himself, like, oh my God, what have I done? And he said, if anyone deserved to die, it was me, Ryan told the detectives. Ryan said that he had planned to drink the liquid death concoction himself after Ben had drank it and commit suicide himself, but he just couldn't bring himself to do it. So he dumped the rest of the poison on the ground by a tree in the front of his house. After the, the detectives found a package and label for potassium cyanide in Ryan's room, the senior in high school was arrested and charged at first with the attempted first-degree murder of his best friend, but after Ben died, those charges were upgraded to first-degree murder. Ryan was held without bail while Ben's family had to plan a funeral. Ben had been a fan of the theater and drama and acting and that whole life and all of that, and he had been selected to play the lead role in his high school's production of A Midsummer's Night's Dream. And he had a private he had his private funeral at St. John's Episcopal Church in Ellicott City. Ben's mother released a statement to the press saying that Ben was just trying to help a lonely friend and that Ben was a caring and talented teen who loved life and saw beauty in everything. Now mind you, I told you that while Ben had soared and blossomed in school and had an active social life, Ryan struggled with depression and he constantly needed tutors and all that because Ryan was, you know, constantly struggling with his grades and struggling to make friends ever since he was a child. And because of all that, Ryan had been seeing a psychiatrist and he had been prescribed the antidepressant Effexor, if I'm saying it right. And he had been taking this medication for about a year and a half because some experts agree that this antidepressant can cause feelings and thoughts of suicide in teens. Ryan's mother basically blamed Ryan's actions on the medication saying that um, Ryan's actions wasn't nothing more than just a side effect of this prescribed medication. And, and in other words, she's basically saying he poised, he decided to poison, Ryan decided to poison his friend because he was taking the Fexer. Or the medic, the side effects from the medication was making him act this way. When Ryan, all right, Ryan pled not guilty. Even though you admitted to, you, you admitted to doing all this, poisoning and blah, 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 he still pled not guilty. They, they, and in a weird turn of events, uh, Ben's girlfriend was thrown in the mix when she testified in court that one night when she was over Ryan's house watching the movie Happy Gilmore, she and Ryan ended up sharing a kiss. In her words, she said, I don't even know why, but I kissed him. She said immediately after she did it, after she kissed him, she said she felt bad about it. And she told Ben, who was her boyfriend of two and a half years. So after she stayed with Ben um, and they didn't break up, Ryan got upset about that and he wrote Ben a letter telling him in his words, I'm sorry about, you know, what happened or what I did to you. Believe me, I never intended for it to happen. I think by now you realize that I love her very much. I will never, I will never give up until I have the keys to her heart. Weird. And Ben wrote uh, Ryan back a letter basically 
saying that he didn't hate him, you know, for what happened, but he was wrong about his feelings for his girlfriend and that he should just leave her alone because he was trying to tell her in so many words, she don't want you. And I ain't even mad about it because you making a big deal out of nothing. She wasn't even liking it. So in, in his response letter to, um, uh, to Ryan, Ben had wrote, I live for her. You know, I basically live my life for her. Uh, the truth that you must know is that she loves me. This situation has gone from, you know, being unpleasant to unbearable for the three of us. I hope someday that the three of us, um, as, as, as individuals and as friends, will one day recover from this and move on. Either way, um, the defense, I mean, uh, the prosecution was very successful in proving that Ryan was guilty of first degree murder and um, Ryan was convicted of first degree murder and um, he received a sentence of life with the possibility for parole. Um, at Ryan's sentencing hearing, Ryan did make a statement and he said in his own words, I am truly sorry for the act I committed. Ben was my best friend and now my greatest nightmare. I'm sure members of the Vasily family despise me for what happened. I don't blame them. I wish I could undo everything and bring him back, but I can't. And uh, like Ryan's mother, Ryan's defense attorney also blamed Ryan's actions on Effexor, the medication, saying that Ryan's use of this antidepressant had clouded Ryan's thinking and that Ryan was emotionally distraught and close to suicide himself when he poisoned Ben. And Ryan's mother completely blamed the prescription drug maker, telling the press that since Ryan got locked up and off, uh, or basically the effects had been reduced or lessened, that Ryan, he's back to his old self again. She's like, my son could really and truly be a taxpayer. He's already turned half, turned half around. If that's not a sign that he doesn't deserve what he got, I don't know what is. She's like, Ryan is even asking me about how to help other teens to stop taking Effexor. I mean, is this one, is she delusional? All this talk about, oh, Ryan is depressed, or Ryan is suicidal, or Ryan don't have no friends, or Effexor this, Effexor that. Anyway, late on that. Ben's father said, fuck all it, looked right at Ryan in his face at his sentencing hearing and called him a murderer. Ben's father told the judge in his own words, my son's death should have been enough to convince you that Ryan Furlow should be put away for good. Ryan Furlow can be treated and he can be medicated, but he can never be rehabilitated. Ryan Furlow needs to be incarcerated forever and ever because you can't cure evil. But because Ryan had absolutely no criminal record whatsoever, the judge did say that there is no indication that he's a hardened criminal. And that's what she said before he sentenced him to a life, uh, basically life in prison with the possibility for parole after serving at least 15 years of his sentence. Later, uh, Ben's parents filed a $2 million lawsuit against Antec Inc., which is the company that sold Ryan the cyanide online in, online in the first place. Uh, Ben's parents also included uh, 
Ryan's parents and even Ryan's psychiatrist as opposing parties or defendants in this case, but the case was later dismissed uh, by a judge. Um, as far as Ryan, he just could not accept responsibility for his actions. And at one point uh, before he was sentenced, he had pled not criminally responsible. But of course, Ryan was found sane and competent to stand trial. Even still, over the years, Ryan has tried numerous times to get out of prison or have his sentence modified or lessened. But as of today's date, he has no such luck. Now, the, let me start analyzing this one like this. Ryan's mother. Stop blaming Effexa. Stop it. Because you know what? There's a, a ton of people that take that. They're not going around poisoning their friends. He had the right frame of mind to know how to order cyanide. Use your credit card. How? To, what amount he would have to use to kill a person. He knew the mood that he was in to you know, kill a person. And I can't, I can't even say kill a person. That was supposedly his friend. So the excuse that she, you know, that she keeps offering up for why he did what he did, that's probably one of the reasons why he's where he's at. Learn to take accountability for your actions. Damn. I mean, if you got to fuck up as a kid, you got to fuck up as a kid. Sometimes you got to own it. Sometimes accept it and move on. He was evil and sinister. Like I can't even, in his little teenage mind, he might have thought that, I don't know if he would, maybe he did not think that he was going to die, but apparently he did. You're going to give somebody cyanide? That could just easily happen, you know, to te a teenager nowadays. They don't think it's going to cause all that problem, or they don't think it's going to cause all that damage, or I don't think this is going to happen. I'm just doing this to try to prove that. And, and look what happened. He ended up dying a painful death. I mean, you go into convulsions and and uh, seizures, and that's a painful way to, to die. And it's just like, I, I cannot believe the the reasoning that they off, that he offered for it. You know, he was depressed, and he was just, he was mad because he wasn't spending no time with him. I mean, I'm supposed to talk to you every day? It was unbelievable. I mean, face it, he was evil, and it was sinister. Simple as that. I mean, I think it was evil to the utmost, especially after all this time to still just to not acknowledge that and you know um to stand back and to watch him die you know exactly what you was doing and you know exactly why you was doing it the the messed up thing about it is just like you know he'll get out one day eventually somebody's gonna you know parole him he'll be paroled one day and he will blend into society i wonder if people will remember that name ryan furlow because when this happened i, I was like wow Wow, I remember because the boy stayed, he stayed into, um, he was in a coma for a, a couple days and I remember thinking, oh, he's going to die because nobody ever lives from Sinai. I remember thinking that, oh, he's going to die. And I remember thinking that, you know, um, I don't know if Ryan may have meant to kill him like this and cause kids might've done this like as a joke. You know, I remember there was a case where. Um, the, the lady didn't, the girl didn't die, but the girl was standing on a bridge or a cliff or something. And she was debating about whether to jump. I seen a video of that. And, and one of her friends pushed her off of that bridge and she fell into the water unprepared. And they thought it was a joke. She could have died from that. She suffered a collapsed lung and other injuries like um, broken ribs and stuff like that. I think it's a joke. It's not funny. 
this Ben and even a, a person that was of value actually died from this. You know, it's, man, this case got me emotional because I remember when it happens. I, I do remember when this happened. Um, I remember thinking to myself, you know, kids play and teenagers play like this all the time. You know, trying to lay somebody's drink with something and see what would happen and stuff like that. And look at this. Now it's not so funny. But, wow, this one will always go down. This did receive national attention as one of Maryland's most notorious uh, revenge-laced motive murders. And moving right on to this episode's Unsolved Homicide. And like I said earlier, just like in every single episode that has been in this podcast... Although a lot of attention and focus is placed on notorious homicide cases that may have received a lot of attention and press from the media, this podcast also shines a light on the many, many, un many homicide cases that we see in the state of Maryland that do not receive a lot of attention or a lot of any mention in the press, if anything at all. These types of homicides are so common in Maryland that there's not a lot of time in this podcast to focus solely on just one. Sometimes when a person gets murdered in this lovely state of Maryland, you don't hear nothing else about it other than the initial report of it and the number of homicides that we have in this state that are unsolved is completely staggering, especially if you go back the last 20, 30 years, like is what I'm doing. Um, it's 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 completely staggering. It's obvious that homicide detectives are not magicians and they can't do it all by themselves or just snap their finger three times or click the heels three times and all of a sudden the case is solved. You know, it's solving homicide cases is not like what you might see on TV, like the first 48. And even if a case is solved, you still got to prove it in court. So gathering evidence, that's not necessarily a walk in the park. In the state of Maryland, it's, it's kind of not like that. It's like homicide detectives... They're often overworked, underpaid, outnumbered, stressed out, and flat out beaten down all the time. And what happens to cases where nobody is talking at all? Like what happens when there's absolutely no clues whatsoever? There's like nobody talking. There's no witnesses. What happens when there are cases where the motive is not clear? There's no evidence or the cases because of the victim's past or their current lifestyle where it seems like the detectives, they're not really trying to investigate the case because, you know, you get a sense or feeling that the detectives, they're not really trying to do it because the, the victim quote unquote had it coming or what happened to those type of homicide cases where it just seems like the clues are there. But nothing is being done because it just seems like the killer or killers, they simply just got away with murder. It just seems like literally nothing is being done with these forgotten homicides because, you know, not because nobody cares about them anymore. Because they still have family and friends that still want to know what happened. But it's because the public simply forgot all about these cases because we have been bombarded or introduced by new homicides. It's like we become immune to homicides in this state. Well, on this podcast, although I do talk a lot about cases where the murder did receive a lot of attention and notoriety and press and stuff like that, 
On the flip side, a focus is also on homicide cases that did not receive the amount of attention or press that they deserved. And with that being said, this episode's unsolved homicide is the shooting murder of 45-year-old Vernon Lee Gao. On November 14, 1986, 45-year-old Vernon Lee Gao left his home to meet up with an unknown friend around 10 p.m. The next day, November 15, 1986, Vernon's body was found around 1.52 p.m. in a wooded area lying on the shoulder of the road in the 7500 block of Race Road in Severn. Vernon had been shot and found without his wallet or any form of identification on him. And that's literally all that the detectives have in this case. So I'm sure somebody has to know something in this 37-year-old unsolved homicide. So if you have any information at all that you want to provide in this case, please call the Anne Arundel County Police tip line at 410-222-4700. You can also call them at 410-222-4731. Or you can call the Anne Arundel County Cold Case Squad at 410-222-3456. Once again, those numbers are the Anne Arundel County Police tip line at 410-222-4700. And you can call the Anne Arundel County Cold Case Squad at 410-222-3456. And you can reach them at 410 410- There is a reward of up to $10,000 for any information leading to an arrest and or conviction for this case and you can always remain anonymous people. Thank you for tuning in this week. Before I go into my usual routine of how you can access prior episodes let me remind you that if you tuned into me at all last season, I told my listeners that I was producing a true crime documentary that was based off of my very first episode uh, and the episode that profiled accused child killers, Don Canella and Paula Carpio Espinoza. And yep, the documentary is now currently available. It was supposed to be shown on Hulu, Tubi, and all that other stuff, but... Because of the extreme graphic nature and the realism of this documentary involving the brutal and horrific beheading murders of three innocent kids, Network shied away from this. I'm not even going to lie. They basically told me that the documentary was too graphic, too much for Network TV, because I'm not cutting out this and I'm not cutting out that. And I guess because the documentary does include um, the actual crime scene photos and all this other stuff, I'm not really trimming everything down because I refuse to pull these photos from the documentary. You know, I did kind of blur it out or whatever, but because of the brutal nature of these these crime, this crime, I think they add to the emphasis of the innocence of Adon Canella and Paula Carpio Espinoza. In order for me to fully emphasize the fact that they did not commit this horrible homicide, I had to show what was done to these kids with no sugarcoating. And there's no way 
the victim's uncle and cousin committed these murders that were extremely, extremely brutal in nature. And if you watch the documentary, you'll see who I believe that these murders were committed by. Either way, um, the documentary is available via email only. It's not for everybody's eyes. And this documentary was not produced to make money or to, you know, likes or, uh, you know, produce this or likes or subscribers or anything like that, which is another reason why I didn't choose the, basically the, the usual network route. I can't and I will not be censored. Not after all this time. I mean, I went through the same thing when I was publishing, um, a couple of my books. They wanted me to censor this stuff out. And I was like, you know what? I will self-publish this. I can't, I won't censor my stuff, especially when it comes to true crime and facts that an injustice that is currently going on. So in order to see the documentary, um, please visit my website at MarylandsMostNotoriousMurders.com and you can subscribe to the mailing list by leaving your email address and you can send me a request specifically requesting me that you want the documentary link and I will email it to you via a link called WeTransfer. Now, um, once the link comes, you will have up to, I believe it's 48 hours to download it. If you don't download it within the 48 hours, um, the link goes away and you just have to ask me again and I'll email it to you again. From That's what I hear, but most people just download it within the 48 hours. But I do have to warn you though, the video is very graphic. And like, as I said, um, Hulu and Tubi and even YouTube all told me no because of its graphic content. And also because, to be honest, I truly believe that with the state of the world in the way that it is now, that basically nobody gives a fuck that these two illegal immigrants are locked up serving life sentences for crimes that they did not commit. They're in their eyes out there like, you know what, they shouldn't have been over here anyway. Nobody gives a fuck. And that's why I produced a documentary anyway to open up people's eyes about what's going on for people that still do give a fuck. And while you're at my website, please be sure to subscribe to this podcast via Spotify for updates on future spine-tingling, hair-raising, eye-popping episodes. And for paid subscribers, be sure to check out the real, the raw, the uncensored version of why I decided to start a true crime podcast in the first place. A lot of people think that I just woke up one day and then out of nowhere, there's a podcast. But nope, that's not even hardly the truth. There is a real therapeutic message uh, to this whole true crime world of gore and mayhem. And if you click on the episode, episode entitled, Why I Do What I Do, you will understand more and better about why I am so wired, so weird, so crazy, and so fascinated with true crime. And how I truly believe that it is like my calling in a weird way. <laughs> and while you're on my um, website, which is Marilyn's Most Notorious Murders dot com. And like I always say, Marilyn is spelled MDS, not the whole word out. Um, be sure to check out all the other prior episodes that you may have missed with all of the different seasons that we have focused on, like uh, suicide murders, um sick, twisted, pedophile, or sex-related type of homicides, which is one where I had to take a break from, or even, like, parasite killings, which is what the last uh, episodes were about. 
Um, you can also find links to all of my true crime books that are loosely related to this podcast entitled Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, 1990-2008, Maryland's Unsolved Homicides, Volume 1, and my local bestsellers Until I Get Caught, The True Story of a Serial Rapist in Baltimore, and Junkie, A True Baltimore Story. All of these books are available on Amazon as well as my other books because actually I have eight books out. But it's just that these are the ones that in, are in particular about, you know, crime or whatever. Um, you can also check me out on season one of Payback, which airs for the TV One network. You can see me on uh, the Oxygen Network Network for Black Widow Murders, where I profiled Maryland's female serial killer, Josephine Gray. Or you can check me out on TV One's Justice By Any Means um, if you really wanted to do some digging. Um, and that's where you can find out, like, my story. Um, you can also check me out on TV One's Fatal Attraction, where I profiled the North Carolina child murderer Peter Moses. Or you can find me hosting Killer Kids for the LMN Network, where I profiled teen killers Sarah Citroni and Jason DeLong. I believe the name of that episode was Full Metal Jacket. I think it was season two, episode four. Um, you can also check out my latest article um, for the Crime Report, where I am also discussing, again, what led me to developing a true crime podcast. Last but not least... Many of my listeners have been messaging uh, and emailing me about how they can donate to this podcast. On my website, MarylandsMostNotoriousMurders.com, there is a there's a couple um, donate icons on the website where you can contribute via PayPal, Anchor, um, was it Coffee or the Buy Me a Coffee icons. All you gotta do is click on that and donate whatever you want. <laughs> Thanks so much for all y'all support on that. It kind of helps this uh, podcast to stay afloat. So please, please, please be sure to tune in next week where another gruesome, another high-profile homicide occurring in Maryland will be profiled, it will be examined, and it will be discussed on Maryland's Most Notorious Murders. And this has been a Savage Life production.